Well, in, uh, in 1886, uh, Leo Tolstoy wrote a short story called How Much Land Does a Man Require? Uh, in that story, the main character was a guy called Pahum, who overheard his wife and his sister-in-law having a conversation, um, having an argument, really, about whether it was better to live in a town or whether peasant farming life was preferable. And he thought to himself, if only I had plenty of land, I wouldn't fear even the devil himself. A short time later, a, a landlady in the village was selling her estate, and a number of the peasants bought up uh, bits of land, including Pahom. He buys some extra land, and by working that land, he's able to pay off all his debts and live a more comfortable life. But he becomes very possessive of the land that he owns, and that actually leads to arguments with his neighbours. Subsequently, he moves to a larger area of land on another commune, and he grows even more crops and amasses what's really a small fortune. But it's rented land, uh, and that irritates him. He doesn't like the fact that he doesn't own it. Finally, after buying and selling a lot of good and fertile land, he's introduced to the Bashkirs, and is told that they are simple-minded uh, people, but nevertheless own a great quantity of land. And so he decides to go to them and to buy as much land as possible uh, for as small a price as possible. And they present him with quite an unusual offer. They say to him that for 1,000 rubles, he can walk around as large an area of land as he wants. He's to leave at daybreak, uh, marking his route as he goes with a spade, and if he returns to his starting point by sunset, he'll be allowed to, to keep all the land uh, that his path encloses. If he doesn't make it back by sunset, though, uh, he will not get any land, and he'll lose all of the money. Pahom is delighted by this offer. He thinks that it's the bargain of a lifetime. And he sets out at daybreak the next morning, and he covers quite, quite a big distance. But when it gets towards sunset, he realizes that he's still quite a long way off from his starting point. And so he runs as fast as he possibly can to get back to his starting point, uh, and he does so, he manages to get there just as the sun is setting. And the Bashkirs are there, and they cheer his good fortune. But at that moment, completely exhausted uh, by his final effort to get back in time, Pahom drops dead. Uh, his servant uh, buries him in, in a grave that's about, that's about six foot uh, by two foot, which, which answers the question that the, that the story asks in its title, How Much Land Does a Man Require? wasn't long after that story was written, in the early 1900s, that John D. Uh, Rockefeller, having started Standard Oil, was the uh, world's richest man and the first American billionaire. And he was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? His answer, just a little bit more. Having looked uh, last week at simplifying our purpose uh, in all of life, we're going on this week to focus in a little bit on one area of our life, uh, particularly finances. We're going to be thinking about simplifying our finances. And the world tells us a lot, doesn't it, about money and possessions. Enough is never enough is certainly one of the things that the world tells us, but it's not the only thing that the world tells us when it comes to money and possessions. Just yesterday in the paper, I was reading an article about a guy who deliberately gets by on quite a modest income. And he had this to say, because I'm not a big spender and I'm not in debt other than my student loan, I don't feel the trappings of that life. 
many people get trapped in the idea that to enjoy life, you have to have certain things. A house, a good job, a car, nice clothes. I disassociate myself from all that. I'm single, don't have a family, or my own house. Although that might not sound positive, it has an affirmative impact on the way I see the world. I feel very okay with that. I don't need things. A very strong part of my philosophy is to lead a minimal life. I have two suitcases with everything in them. The world tells us all kinds of stories, all kinds of things which it labels as truth when it comes to how we should feel about money and possessions. And uh, from enough is never enough, you always need a little bit more, to uh, life is more than possessions, lead a minimal life, you don't need things. And I guess both of those uh, outlooks have their attractions in a way. I wonder which one you find uh, more attractive or which you wish you found more attractive, perhaps. The world tells us many things uh, when it comes to money and possessions, but what does the Bible tell us? Well, as it happens, perhaps unsurprisingly, it tells us a great deal. Perhaps unsurprisingly because of how influential money and possessions are in the world. I'm told that there are... um, over 2,300 verses in the Bible that deal with money and possessions. Uh, That in the Gospels, uh, one in 10 verses deal with money, and that of Jesus' 38 parables, 16 of them deal with money and possessions. We're going to look at just one of those parables this evening, so uh, would you open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12. If you have a uh, red church Bible, uh, we're on page 1,045. If you don't have a uh, Bible with you and would like one, you poke one hand in the air, hopefully someone will appear with one. Page 1045 of the Church Bibles. So we're in Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grains, all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Jesus tells this particular parable in uh, response to a question from the crowd. This passage in Luke comes in uh, the middle of a big section of teaching from Jesus, and he's teaching about big stuff, uh, stuff that pertains to the very reason why he came uh, and looks forward to his coming again. But in amongst it, we get this incident. And, uh, and this parable off the back of it. I imagine uh, Jesus teaching all these amazing things and there being this guy uh, in the crowd thinking that this Jesus seems to know a thing or two and he seems to teach uh, with, with some authority. 
And so this guy, perhaps a few, a few rows back from the front, pokes his head up and shouts out, hey, teacher, now tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, it may have been that he was a younger brother and uh, by law was entitled to a smaller share of the inheritance, but wanted an equal one. Or maybe his brother was dealing unfairly with him and uh, giving him less than he was entitled to. Whatever the reason, we don't actually find out because Jesus won't have a bar of it. Have a look down at verse 14. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Now, there's a very real sense in which Jesus is the judge of everyone. But this issue at this time is clearly not his concern. He had in his uh, mind far greater and more important things uh, than arguments about money and possessions. We're not told uh, what the motives of the man were in asking this question, but it seems that the greed was a part of it. Because even though Jesus point-blank refuses to settle this particular dispute, he does take this opportunity to teach on money and possessions. Have a look at verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Uh, There seems to be a kind of urgency here, doesn't there? Watch out, be on your guard. And I guess that makes sense, because how easy is it for greed to creep into our thinking, perhaps unnoticed? I'd be happy if I just had that little bit more. Or really, I deserve uh, more than I have. Or I'd like to help them, but really not at that cost to myself. And why is greed wrong? Because a person's life does not consist in having lots of things. This is not the benchmark, regardless of what it is that the world tells us uh, we should think about money. Jesus then tells uh, his, his story, his parable, to drive his point home. Uh, I, I kind of imagine that Tolstoy must have had this parable playing in the back of his head as he wrote that short story. Because in this story, there's, there's a rich man who has property, and he gets a really good harvest. His property produces a really good crop. So good, in fact, uh, that he has a problem on his hands in that he can't store all of the grain uh, that he's grown. It's kind of a first world problem before there was a first world to speak of. But thankfully, thank goodness, he works out a way to solve his problem. He's going to tear down his barn, uh, his barns, and build bigger ones in which he can store all his grain uh, and all his other stuff as well. And then he has a bit of a, a chat to himself. He says, self, you've, you've worked really hard. Uh, you've earned this, and now you've got all this stuff. Uh, you'll be able to look after yourself for years to come. It's really time to take it easy now. Uh, live it up. Eat, drink, and be merry. It seems, for a moment, like he's got it made, but only for a moment, because God says to him, what a fool you've been. You think that you've got it made, but tonight you're going to die. And who will get all your stuff then? The answer to that question, definitely not you. So where did this man uh, go wrong in what he did? What What was the problem with his actions? Was it that he was rich? Well, no. Money is not a bad thing. Money is not the root of all evil. That's a, that's a misquote uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, which actually says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money in and of itself is not a bad thing. Uh, in fact, it, it's a good thing. So it wasn't that this man had money uh, that, that, it was, uh, that was the problem. Nor was it the fact that he planned to save it. This, again, is something that we see is a good thing to do uh, in the Bible. 
Proverbs is all about wisdom, and Proverbs verse 6, verses 6 to 8, uh, says this, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. It's good, good to save, good to be wise uh, with the things that we're given. So it was neither that he was rich, uh, nor that he planned to save. Money in and of itself is, is a good thing, and it's wise to save. But we see the problem in verse 21. Have a look down at it. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. It's not that he stored up things for himself, it's that he did it uh, without being rich towards God. He did it with reference to himself alone. In fact, there's no one else even mentioned uh, in the parable. It's almost as if he thinks that, that he himself has become kind of like a little God. He's, he's made plans for himself. He's provided for himself. He's in complete control of the situation. But we see as we go on that any control that he thinks he has is illusionary. His life is demanded of him. Uh, and then his barns full of uh, goods, which he saw as being the ultimate security, turn out to be nothing uh, but great shrines to his foolishness. It shows up that both of those worldviews that we looked at at the beginning are wrong. They're both carried out with reference to the individual rather than any reference to God. With the first, I guess, that's more obvious. It's all about getting more for me, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Uh, the second, more frugal uh, course, might seem more virtuous at face value, but one of the things that it did say he, he was saving for in this article was what he called assisted end of life. He had uh, no pension, and uh, he, he thought that, that he would be in control of the end. When it got to a point that he had no money anymore, he wouldn't have to go on living. He would make that choice. There's a sense in which they both think that they are ultimately in control of their situations and are living with reference to themselves alone uh, instead of with reference to God. In both approaches, whether living with more or less, it's life lived with reference to oneself, not to God. What Jesus wants, though, is for people to be rich towards God, to handle their finances with reference to Him. We saw last week that our ultimate purpose in life, the ultimate purpose of each of us, is to glorify God. Uh, if you weren't here last week and you want to think more about that, uh, you can uh, listen to that on the website. But if that's true, then it follows that we're to glorify God with all parts of our life, and that includes our finances. Uh, what that is going to look like for each person is uh, going to be slightly different in each case. I don't think it's always going to look exactly the same. But there are some uh, principles that I think we can draw uh, from this parable and from further afield within uh, God's Word in the Bible uh, that will help us to think about how we use our finances with reference to God, how we simplify our finance, how we are rich towards God. We're going to think about just four of them now. Uh, it may be that you uh, aren't able to take all four of these bits of application and, and entirely apply them to your life in the next 24 hours, but I would encourage you to perhaps pick just one of them, which is the one that you feel like you need to think about the most. And perhaps in the coming week, uh, think about how you might apply that to your life, how you might put it into practice. The first one is see money for what it is. See money for what it is. I, for one, am really glad uh, that we have money. 
it's a good thing. I'm glad that we're not still uh, using the barter system. I'm not really sure how far I would get if I went around saying to people, I'll preach you a sermon and you give me a loaf of bread. I'm just really not 100% sure they'd go for it. I'm really glad we have money. It's, it's good uh, that we have it, but it's not an ultimate thing and it's only for now. There wasn't always money. Uh, there was no cash point in the Garden of Eden. Money wasn't an integral part of God's design uh, when he created the world. And um, even though we're not told, I'll be slightly surprised if we have money in the new creation either. Uh, money is temporary. It's temporary in that big overarching sense, but it could also be temporary uh, on, on a smaller scale as well. Just because we have money today is no guarantee that we'll have money tomorrow or, or next week. Uh, money is a, a, a temporary thing. It's only for now, but for the time being, if we have it, it is a good gift from God. Everything uh, that we have which is good, we're told, is a gift from Him. Uh, so it follows that, that if we have money, which in and of itself is a good thing, it is a gift from God. But as has always been the case, uh, people attempted to take the good things uh, that God has given them and turn them into God things. To take something good that God has given and instead of worshipping God, worship it instead of Him. And it's no different uh, with money. If we're looking to money to provide us with our ultimate security, uh, then we've let that good gift from God become a God for us. We worship money instead of God. And if we've done that, then we're putting our trust in the wrong place because money is, is temporary. It's only a thing. It can't buy us eternal life. The rich man in Jesus' parable found that out uh, the hard way when he was putting his trust in his money and his possessions uh, to provide him with ultimate security. We need to see money for what it is, which will help us to keep it in the right place in our thinking. It is a gift, not a God. It's a means, not a Messiah. It might be uh, as simple as, uh, as sitting down. This might sound a bit silly, but perhaps it would be helpful to sit down with, with a banknote in front of you and just tell yourself some truths about it. What is this and what is it not? To help get it in the right place in your thinking. Perhaps it would be uh, helpful each time you spend money to internally acknowledge that that money was a gift from God, to thank Him uh, and use it in ways that glorify Him. So see money for what it is. Secondly, uh, expect change. I didn't really intend that pun, but there it is anyway. Expect change. It may well be the case uh, that when some people, perhaps even a lot of people, uh, become Christians, what they say is, yes, Jesus, you have my heart, you have my life, but Jesus, keep your hands off my wallet. My finances are mine, and I will take care of that area. Thank you very much. I suppose it is unlikely to be as blatant as that, really, when it comes down to it, but I think it really does work like that in practice uh, a lot of the time. And Jesus says that this mustn't be the case. Jesus is Lord, and we're to welcome him as the Lord of all parts of our lives, including our bank balance. We should expect things to change for us financially when we choose to follow Jesus. We see that happening uh, time and time again in the Bible. One example of that is uh, when Zacchaeus decides to follow Jesus. After that happens, we see this in Luke chapter 19. It's Zacchaeus uh, says this, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. 
Zacchaeus had chosen to follow Jesus, and as a result, he couldn't uh, go on relating to his finances in the way he had been before. Uh, There had to be a change. Becoming a disciple of Jesus radically uh, transformed his finances, and we should expect the same to happen for us. It won't necessarily mean that we uh, give away all of our money, um, but it will mean that we use our money in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord. We should expect change. If we've become followers of Jesus and it has in no way affected our finances, uh, then we need to ask questions about whether or not we're really using our money as though Jesus were our Lord. Maybe have a look at your bank statement uh, this week and ask yourself, can I see from this uh, that Jesus is my Lord? So see money for what it is, expect change, and thirdly, be a good steward. Money is a good gift from God, and when someone gives you a gift, uh, you want to respond by using that gift rightly, and it's no different with money. In light of the fact that it's something given to us by God, we should go about trying to use it well, being good stewards of what it is that He's given to us. Part of that will just be being practically sensible um, about the way we use our money. Doing things like keeping a budget uh, is glorifying to God if the, money that he, if the money that we have is a gift from Him. Uh, so, so, so maybe we, we need to do that. If, if we don't do it now, uh, we need to think about uh, doing a, a monthly budget. I saw uh, this chart um, during the week that I think is coming up on the screen, uh, which divides things up. Um, from the center circle, you can see that all of it ultimately belongs to God, which is a good thing uh, to keep in mind. And after that, it divides money into four areas that really cover everything um, that we can do with money. Uh, there's, there's live, money that we, that we you know, spend day to day and live on. Uh, there's give, money that we give away. Uh, grow, or, or money that we save, if you like. And owe, uh, whether that be money that we pay in taxes, that we owe to the government in that sense, or whether it be debts, uh, things like uh, mortgage repayments or credit card debts. Those are, those are the four areas, the four kinds of things we can do with our money. Um, but I think we often can address them in the wrong order, Uh, when it comes to budgeting. A natural tendency, I guess, would be to put live first, to think this is the kind of life I want to live, Uh, this is the kind of lifestyle I want to have, it's going to cost this much money, and so I'm going to put aside that much money for live right at the get-go. And then we might go on to owe, and we might say, well, I do owe these people this much money, so I'd best uh, give that to them, or things could get ugly. Uh, We might then go on to save, Uh, It's sensible, it's wise to save, so I'm going to to save uh, this bit of money, and then, at the end, uh, perhaps get on to give, if there's still some left over. Um, If there's some left over, we might decide uh, to give that away. But I think the Bible would suggest that it's better to turn that on its head. Uh, It seems from the Bible that that give uh, should be much, much further up, perhaps first. In the Old Testament, uh, God's people were to bring the first fruits of what they grew uh, to God as an offering to Him. They were to bring the first, firstborn lamb uh, from a flock as an offering to God, not, not a leg of lamb from the last lamb that was born if it happens to be left over at the end of the winter. In the Old Testament, they were to give a tenth of everything uh, that they had. There were the very strict rules about how much they were to give. And we now, post-Jesus, post uh, are free from that kind of legalism. But being free from that doesn't mean that we're, we're free to give less than 10%. It means that we're free to give generously, uh, however much we, we choose to do in response to God uh, for what He's done to, for us. 
He's done a great deal for us, and it's not uh, possible or necessary for us to repay him uh, for what he's done, and yet we still do give, give uh, generously in response to what it is that he's done for us. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. I think we should be looking towards uh, giving first. Surely that is one way in which we can be rich toward God by looking at what he's given us and seeing from amongst it what we might give back. Uh, There might be exceptions to this. Uh, For example, if you're in a a lot of unplanned debt, you might want to look at getting that sorted out uh, before you think about giving a lot of money away. But I still think it works as a good uh, general rule. Uh, then I guess we, we might move on to O. O might keep its place uh, in second position. Jesus was really practical about the fact uh, that we're to, to do things like pay taxes. When asked a question about 